One day I took about 30 people to Paul Bocuse in Colonge-Jean-Mondor and they brought in the dining room four of those gigantic fish cooked in puff pastry. So basically it is sea bass that is filleted. In between they put a crayfish and fish mousse. And the whole thing is surrounded with puff pastry made of the shape of the fish. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Today, it's part two of our interview with the wonderful Gabrielle Gattay. If you haven't listened to episode one, please do check it out. We learn about Gabrielle's career and life in France and Australia. Gabrielle trained in Michelin-starred restaurants and called some of the best chefs in the world his friends. In this second part of my interview with Gabrielle, we learn about the show that put him in the homes of many Australians whilst we went on a culinary voyage following the Tour de France every year with him. But we also dive into the subject of seafood and its importance in the culinary traditions of French food. You won't want to miss this one, part two of Fabulously Delicious with Gabrielle Gattay. A lot of people will know you from your gourmet segment following the Tour de France, yes. uh, which you did for 15 years. What are some of your fondest memories from doing that? Well, to start with, uh, I created the, no, the, the show, I presented it to SBS and uh, and at the time, because I said, you know, it's good to Tour de France is such a, an amazing thing uh, about France. It's a cultural show. You, the images from the helicopter is just amazing. The, the regions, the mountains. Uh, and I, I, I suggested that perhaps we could, uh, I could get involved with doing a little segment talking about the culture, the, the regions, the food. And at the time, SBS said, we'll, listen, we, we produce sport. We don't produce cooking. And then we discussed further, and a couple of years later, I was I was asked, Les Marie said, listen, we think the idea is good, but you'll have to produce it because we do sport. So we sold the experience I had in television, in really what's cooking. I was really producing a food segment for, you know, for a daily show uh, with other people, but uh, and with working with cameramans and others, I started to understand what it t- took to put a television show. And then as that segment started, it was recorded in Australia and became popular. And then suddenly, we found ourselves uh, spending two months in France, going from region to region, featuring the best of every region where the Tour de France was going that year. And that means visiting the, the most beautiful markets, meeting some of the great pâtissiers, the great chef, meeting someone making the best local goat cheese, you know, visiting the market where that person was selling the goat cheese and so on and so on. So it was uh, for the last 10 years of me uh, doing presenting and uh, producing that show, it was really uh, the the best job of my life because it, it, it was everything together, you know, like my skill as a chef, my skill as a communicator uh, about food, my skill on television that I'd learned for many years. And... Um, and it was really lovely. And, and then two years ago, I decided that it was good. I, I had enough. I, I've worked hard in my life. Um, so I, I let it go. And I, I, on television, there's a rule that I've learned after more than 40 years of television. It is always nicer to live on your terms rather than when they tell you, sorry, mate, it's finished with no warning. <laughs> so uh, it was wonderful. I have a great relationship with SBS, um, and and people are you know remind you know remember uh, Tesla tours as, as something fun and where you know they 
took them away in the middle of a, a cold winter in Australia. With that show, I mean, you pretty much highlighted so much of French food and French culture as you travelled around the race. What dish or, or person in particular did you enjoy showing? Well, there's been many. Every year there was magic moments, really those magic moments where you, um, you know, you, you go in a farm at 2,000 metres high in the Alps, you know, La Chevrerie, and you have got two two guys, they look like hippies, they have been in their country all their life, you know, they 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 milk their, their goats by hand and they make their cheese, you know, in a small room and and then, you know, they turn their cheese and they brush them and they go to the market and everyone knows them and you taste the thing and you say, gosh, I've never tasted the cheese like that in my whole life. So they're, 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 as a chef, this is really a magic moment, you know, you, because... You know, they open their door and you sit with them for breakfast. You know, they, they milk the cow, they, you know, they mix, you know, do their preparation. They go for breakfast. So it's, you know, the red wine at breakfast and whatever they, <laughs> they have because it's, their day is halfway already. You know, they have been up for, for three or four hours. Um, but all, at the magic moment was meeting uh, for the second time in my life, the great chef called Michel Gerard, you know, the chef that really was, um, uh, amazing in uh, uh, with nouvelle cuisine with you know the revolution of modern cuisine when we went there three years ago 85 year old still in the kitchen not not chopping the onion but certainly uh, uh, you know running his brigade in the most amazing city in Eugenie Leba with a beautiful garden with a uh, garden, you know, like uh, with you know, century-old trees, but also a vegetable garden, herb garden, um, in a most delightful hotel that you can imagine, a spa you know, you know, that he has been running. He's 85. He has been a chef for 60-something years. He has got a three-star restaurant. Uh, he has understood what it is about, and he explained to me. He said, "We, we, it's like theater. It's a show. People come to be entertained. They don't, they don't come to, you know. But you have got to entertain them with the most beautiful uh, crockery, cutlery, the decor, the table, the entrance, the music, the, you know, greeting them, giving them the chance to visit the kitchen. You know, like." It is not just, you know, being a smart ass in the kitchen, imposing what you think is best. It's really giving, giving the clients, you know, like, you know, a dream day, you know, something that they will remember for the rest of, the, of their life. So for me, that was a highlight because I know that now he's 88, it was three years ago. He's not going to be there for many years. And I, I've been lucky to, to meet a, a true master. I was reminded from your Instagram recently, there was also the special uh, show you did, uh, the Tour de Frankston. <laughs> and <laughs> I bring this up because it really does highlight your humour. How have you gone with, and especially with Australians, with your humour? Well, uh, first, you know, like you work hard in your life and, you know, the, the light moments, are, you know, highlights, you know, between chefs and with between family, I've always enjoyed uh, 
playing jokes. I've always enjoyed having a giggle. And, and you know, when we cook, of course, it's like uh, you are with the moment. It's concentration. It depends what you are doing, what level. But, you know, like humor, I, I work with Bert Newton on television, okay? Uh, you know, uh, someone that has worked all his life on television. I work with him for 15 years every week. Um, and he used to say, you know, our business is to entertain, to entertain people. When you are a chef on television, if you are too serious, you, you know, it's, it, it used to be okay, but now it's not enough. It's not enough. Um, so, and, and I really enjoy having a good life. You know, I think that we can take, as we say in Australia, take the peace, uh, you know, out of self. You know, nothing is too serious. Nothing is permanent. Um, and the Tour de Frankston, that was for the ABC. It was a send-up of, uh, of the Tour de France. And, and it's really, there was a really good director. We had the ball doing it, and they put it together. And basically, we, we just laugh, you know, laugh about, you know, yes. the way people live in the other places, the, the speciality of their foods. And in Frankston on that day, the speciality was the dim sim. And nobody knows what's inside. <laughs> it's a secret. Interesting, because you've also uh, been on The Wiggles. Ah, they used my voice for one of their voiceover for one of their shows uh, many years ago. It, you know, it's really interesting when to, you know, to use all those things because um, voiceovers is actually quite, quite an important skill when you... Uh, do recipes uh, on television because uh, when you edit recipes, you really need to to use a fair bit of your voiceovers to to describe what you are doing. So, any ways of training? Uh, I I took classes in acting. I, I took classes in miming, just for fun, just to get a little bit more skillful. At I did some juggling, just so you become a bit more loose, so you become a better perf- performer and. Um, and you know it pays off. So you're fully Australian now. Does that mean the mean that you eat Vegemite? I must say that Vegemite, I, I, I accept that people would like it, because over the years I've spread it for my kids, and and you know you lick the, your finger, you always get a little. And at the beginning, I, I, I thought, gosh, what is this? Uh, now I accepted that it would please some people, but it is still not my thing. Like I really would never, uh, you know choose to have a Vegemite toast. But I understand that people like it because it's part of the first food that people might have had. And that first food is really important to people. Don't worry. I am one of the few Australians that doesn't like Vegemite. My mother used to threaten to put it on my tongue when I was bad. Gabriel, uh, something special happened on Bastille Day in 2000. What was that? Ah, yes, I was uh, honoured with uh, a French distinction. It's um, it's not, um, you know, knighthood, but we call it chevalier. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a recognition to my contribution to French uh, gastronomy through the Department of uh, Agriculture. So it is a distinction. It's called uh, l'Ordre du Mérite Agricole. It's given to people that have contribu- contributed to usually the chefs, to, to uh, gardeners, to uh, winemakers that have contributed to things to do with, um, with things that are grown. Um, and that, that was a great honor because it's a really important uh, distinction in France. It, is, um, it was really lovely to, to get that uh, as a recognition for, 
for what I had done. You know, lots of people do a lot, so it was a it was an honor. The family in France must have been very proud of you. Very proud, yeah. Especially my my father, my parents, because they never quite realized uh, what I was doing in Australia. You know, because they are a long way away. You know. Uh, and, and they, they don't see the television. And it, nowadays, you can exchange, but at that time, it was a lot more difficult. So getting back to your childhood and food and family life, how important was seafood at that time? Well, fish and seafood was really important because um, first, remember, France is, <laughs> is you know, mostly a Christian country. So I, when I was a young, young, on Friday, you, you ate fish. And on Sunday lunch, fish was a very big thing in the French family. And in my family, we went fishing in the river. And so uh, the river fish was often uh, uh, served at lunch on Monday or, or Sunday, uh, Sunday night dinner. Um, and so we, we cooked a lot of fish. We, we love cooking fish. And we, we cooked fish very differently from Australians. We really, uh, more often than not, cooked the fish in a liquid or cook the fish on, on top of a bed of onion you know, covered or in the oven or on some tomatoes or some herbs. So basically what the majority of the fish that we would eat would be served white. Well, in Australia, that's what one of the big things I noticed is that uh, when I first cooked my dinner parties, it was very difficult to say, to tell people I am going to you know, poach that, that John Dory fillet in uh, in a courbouillon or, or in a stock, uh, because people really like their fish to be brown, like their meat. So it had to be uh, deep fried in something, or it had to be coated with breadcrumbs or, or pan fried, uh, at least be brown, because the tradition was a fish was the fish and chip. So that's what the, the way people understood fish, uh, not the Friday treat or not that kind of thing. So, um, but in France, that poaching of fish is wonderful because nowadays, actually, people use those techniques, the sous vide and all of that, really. It's a, it's a form of cooking uh, things slowly in, a, in, in water or in a stock. So with fish, either you made a courbouillon and at home, every, every home families had what we call a sommelier, which was a really big, long kettle. And if you caught a big fish, you cook the whole fish in that. First, you made a courbouillon, so you, you, know, you put water, you put some herbs, some parsley, you put a little bit of, of thyme, you put some cracked pepper, you put a bay leaf, sometimes you put some orange zest or you know, a little bit of, of white wine. You cook that for a little while for, for the, those herbs to infuse, and then you drop your fish into that, and then you just brought it to a simmer, hardly simmering, so it would poach, cook slowly, and that what it did is that it kept the fish moist, kept kept it so you know so delicate, and then uh, with a bit of experience, you knew when the fish, the fish was cooked, and that was really whether it was a fish fillet or, or whether it was a whole fish. That was one of the most delicate fish to way to cook fish, uh, and and of course there's all those techniques of. Uh, uh, you know, putting some, a little bit of white wine in the bottom of a dish, a little bit of shallots, some sliced mushrooms, put your fish fillet, cover and cook in the oven or cook in the pan uh, until it's just cooked. Which, and then after that, you lift your fish when it's hardly cooked, almost cooked, and you make a sauce out of that 
you know, that juice, you know, like you put a bit of cream or a bit of butter or, you know, and, and, or a bit of vegetable puree, and that gives you an amazing, amazing sauce to serve with that. And good example is the Coquille Saint-Jacques that are poached. Such a, I know you love them, such an amazing, the scallops, the, that's what we call uh, Coquille Saint-Jacques, is the scallops. They're amazing in France. They are big, they are fat, they are delicious, they are flavorsome. People buy them in the shell, or, or you, nowadays you go to your fishmonger and it's still um, still alive. And that's a big difference, of course. In France, there's that, that freshness that you, mm, the, the best fishmonger, they don't sell many, many frozen food. Uh, you know, you have got the, the crabs, you have got the, uh, the araignée, the, the spider crabs, you have got the, the, the prawns still moving, you have got the yabbies, you have got all of that is. Is, is still very fresh. The oysters opened the last moment. So in France, the poissonnier is at the market is just as important as a butcher or a formatory, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yeah. And they do really well. And you see, they, they come with a lot of fish and they come with a lot of ice and they, they cut in front of you. You choose your fish, they fillet it, they do it the way you want. Uh, they do lots of preparation for you. Um, they, 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 you know, and really... Um, and and people, um, the, the the families, they have a, a, well traditionally have a fairly good knowledge. They know what they want. They they are not asking the poissonnier, oh, is that a good fish? They know. I want this one that size. Yeah. Um, the, their favorite fish and the, the seasonal fish and the fish from the Atlantic is extraordinary because the the Atlantic, especially the North Atlantic, the Channel. Same fish that the English, the English people get, like the, the turbo, the sole. It's cold, fi- cold water fish. Cold water fish is more delicate than, uh, than warm water fish. So it's, they are spoiled with high quality fish. Yeah. When you came to Australia, you mentioned before how Australians like everything brown and so fried, etc. I mean, yeah. when I grew up, like my mum's cooking of fish was either it was we went and got fish and chips or we had fish fingers. Yes. You go to Australia in the 70s, uh, the late 70s. What was that like in regards to seafood? Like you arrive and you don't have a fishmonger at every market in Australia. No. Well, uh, luckily, being a chef, that, that's you investigate. So, you know, there, there were some good fish being caught. The variety was minimal. You know, like it was really the flathead, the whiting, um, the flounder, the flounders. You know, at that time, there was very little scallops. There, there were some prawns, especially in South Australia. The, the king prawns were, were good. The whiting... Whiting was was excellent, so the variety was not uh, was was not great. Um, people still relied too much, in my view, on, on things that were frozen. It was a bit of a bit of a shock. Um, and but you know, I cooked those poached fish without insisting too much. I just said I'm going to cook something really lovely. Uh, I had a dish that was really very popular uh, in my dinner parties. That was my star dish, where I used to fold uh, a fillet of whiting and inside I would put uh, I would make a prawn mousse and I would cook uh, I would have a dish you know a pan a little bit of shallots a bit of white wine or a little bit of stock put um, the fish over that steam it and then make a sauce with that or or serve it with a beurre blanc sauce Uh, so I would cover the fish so the sauce was on the fish and I would garnish it with a 
a, a pill prone on top so it would look good and you know like uh, so people would try and they once they had tried this this is so good you know i would never order something like that uh, because it was not brand so people were ready uh, if you didn't discuss things too much you know with with taste it's sometimes best to for people not to know and they taste and they say oh that was delicious what was it uh, rather than than because people with with taste people protect themselves so i remember um uh, originally, you know, when I arrived, there was not many asparagus. I cooked asparagus all my life. Uh, people uh, practically preferred the can, the tin asparagus that people served with sandwiches, you know, those white. And if you serve the fresh asparagus, people say, oh, uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Or, or, or you would say, have you tested it the way I do it? And No, no, but I, I know that I don't like it. So people protect themselves. That, that's what happens. They're, what you don't know is scary, so that that's what what's happened. So it's education. You know what? I'm not criticizing Australians or anybody because things have changed so much. Now you can serve raw fish. You know, like that. Yes. that uh, you, I could not serve pink. Uh, I, I used, in my first classes. I used to cook, uh, you know, racks of lamb and and legs of lamb that were you know cooked and rested and. It was pink, it was tender, it was delicious. <sighs> oh, you could not do that with everybody. You really had to, for some people, to put it, you know, to give them another few minutes or really cover it with a sauce where they, they would not see any pink because, uh, but now, of course, it's it's a must, you know, like uh, people have changed. How has things changed now from when you first arrived? What is the What is it like now for seafood in Australia, apart from being very expensive sometimes? Yeah, it is too expensive, definitely. Um, it, it is interesting. Your question is interesting because in Victoria, where I live, there is a region called Gippsland, and it's the largest uh, region of Victoria, sub-region. Uh, uh, and uh, it, has, it is also the largest coastal region of Victoria. And if you ask the local, the local people in Gippsland, what's the speciality of your region? Everybody is going to say, oh, we have got some nice beef, we have got some nice lamb, we have got some uh, great cheese, we have got some great wines, we have got some asparagus, we have got this, we have got that. And then suddenly seafood. Don't, so if you want, the, it's very different from France, where France, the seafood is, you know, the fresh oysters, the, the seafood platter. We didn't even talk about the seafood platter that comes. That's just amazing display of fresh seafood with crabs and and you know oysters and langoustine and things like that. Um, so it is not in the mind of the people seafood as uh, as one of the great food of Australia, and yet it is one. Uh, we have got dedicated uh, fishermen. We have got an amazing uh, crustacean. We have got great uh, uh, crayfish, no uh, langoust. Uh, we, are, we have got uh, great prawns, we have got calamari, we have got mussels, we have got a lot of things. People are not always adventurous. We have got many different types of fish from different types of water. We have got the great fish from the colder water. Uh, and we have got the fish also from the tropics, like a coral trout is a magnificent fish, the, tr- the trompeter, the the non whatever the red emperors and all of that. So if you want, we have got we have got it. Uh, people are still not always confident in preparing it, and there is something quite different with uh, Australian kitchen than French kitchen. 
when in France you cook a, a beurre blanc sauce or you poach fish, people arrive and say, hmm, it smells good. You are cooking a beurre blanc. You are, you are uh, cooking fish. In Australia, the fan has got to be on. Open the door. There is that thing about smells in kitchen that was not as positive noticed as, as it is in Europe uh, or in an Italian restaurant where you arrive and you can smell the, the garlic or you can smell the seafood, you know, the, the, the seafood soup cooking and things like that. Um, but that being said, Australians have become very sophisticated because Australians love traveling. Australians have, have become much more adventurous cook, trying Asian food, trying European food, Middle Eastern food, to, to cure fish now, to eat uh, raw salmon with a little dressing, is, is now very common. So really, the new generation is very different. Getting back to France and French food uh, in relation to seafood, there's a seasonality to it, isn't there? Because well, uh, for example, scallops, you know, like it's more uh, something that starts with, uh, you know, when, the, when you can't fish them too. <laughs> um, so, so it's, uh, I remember when we were in, in France, sometimes it was, uh, you know, uh, the beginning of the end of the season in April. Uh, it, it depends on the region, it depends on how many fishes. Uh, the, the tuna, for example, uh, when we were there in, um, in the southwest of France, you know, in the, those great markets, the Basque market, and I wanted to do a tuna to use with, uh, you know, to, to show some tuna to cook, to use with the piment d'espelette. And they said, oh, you'll have to wait a couple of weeks. So that was, that was the end of May. So the tuna would arrive, you know, at, at the end of May. And that, that would be the season. Um, and so there is, uh, you know, the season for, for, for lots of things. And, and in France, of course, because of the climate, you know, like, you know, what's when it's winter, but the cooking is very different too. In winter, you know, you, you make the, you know, the, you know, those big dishes like, um, you know, like, like uh, the, you know, with duck and, and beans and, uh, you know, all, all those, you know, from practically your region, you are not very far from, from that country. Uh, and, and so the winter cooking is very different from summer cooking. In summer cooking, suddenly you have got, uh, you know, the, the poached fish with mayonnaise. You have got, uh, in winter, it's more like, uh, you know, the, the, the heav more heavy fish soups that you blend and with the leek and potatoes and the, the local, the seasonal vegetables. So, yeah, the, the cuisine is varies the, um, the availability of food, the, the crayfish season. Uh, to all of that to to preserve like uh, the so the salmon uh, was winter when the you know when the fish came in the river and then after that the spring stopped because there were babies and so you know it, it was a no no or, or the the fish were pregnant uh, so so you you had to uh, to respect that to in order to to make things you know lasting for generations so what is it about French food that, and, and the French that they can wait, I suppose, in anticipation, so to speak, of, of, of the salmon coming in winter or the asparagus coming when it's due? In France, all those traditions started before uh, transport was easy. So you had, to, you had to cook the local food in season. So you didn't bring. In Australia, of course, it's a reasonably new country. 
and you know came with uh, you know, the industrial revolution and all of that uh, and and also you know it australia is 14 times uh, big bigger than france uh, so you know at the moment there's actually quite some decent strawberry come coming from the sunshine coast they're actually better than the strawberry we get in summer in victoria in my view in flavor in flavor it is a bit unfortunate that they have got to come for that long uh, but if you want but there's there's food that are stupid to use you know in uh, like at the moment I, I would not use peaches that come from you know from in, in australia I, th- I think it just doesn't work uh, but but there's things that work better than others but I, I think we have so many uh especially where i live in victoria uh, you know it's such a, a it's a garden state and that's what it used to be called uh, so there's plenty of fresh food being grown uh, all the time but at the same time it's really lovely to be able to use the mangoes you know when they are in season because they're just a, such an extraordinary fruit i like to use popo which is a, a fruit that is underestimated in Australia. Even fri- French fresh pineapple. The other day, I bought a pineapple that was exquisite. That that cost four dollars. You know, I actually made four four pots of jam out of it. I mix it with some popo. Nobody makes it. You know, because yeah. when I arrived, the pineapple was exclusively. You know, it was used from the can. You know, using a fresh pineapple. Yes. At home was a very rare thing, and it is still still rare. And it is still uh, uh, when I did my apprenticeship in 1971, we used to make a pineapple sorbet. That was just amazing, amazing. Not all the time, you know, when it was coming from the French, uh, you know, the the French colonies, uh, you know, the islands, and they, they were plentiful. What an extraordinary fruit! Very uh, not not used so much, and yet it is uh, available, you know, all the time. So, you know, uh, it, it is better to to eat food locally, and it's better to eat food that uh, that works with the weather. I think that you are healthier in winter if you have soups, vegetable soup. You are healthier in summer if you eat raw vegetables with radishes and cucumber and, and things like that. I think that that's really important for your body. Moules and frits, which is mussels and oh, French yes, fries. Yes. Some would say arguably it's a, a Belgium dish, but it seems to be as popular as McDonald's for, you know, a quick bite to eat here in France. Why is it such a popular dish? Uh, about 10 years ago, um, I think there was a company that uh, did some research, some market research about the most popular French dish. And they did it in summer. And moule frites came as the number one in that particular time of the year. Because it's, it's kind of, a, well, to, to start with, the French people cook mussels very well, you know, in, in so many ways. You know, sometimes they're open, there's different types, the big one, the small one, the bouchot. And it's, um, it's a food that you share, it's an animal of the table. So it's really, uh, it's a wonderful food to share. It's like, you know, in the United States or other places where they put some shrimps in the middle of the table and everyone starts, you know, Pinning them, and you know you, you know. so it is that kind of of food. It is uh, it it pleases everybody. Even kids in France love mussels, you know, because it's part of our of our heritage. 
but certainly the, the Belgian people, uh, with especially the the, the fries, um, they, they they really um, they they love them because potato in France, in terms of geography, uh, the, the potatoes uh, were easier to grow in a colder climate, like like in the tropics, like in Queensland, you, it's easier to probably to grow. But Queensland in Australia is okay, but in in the, the islands, you know, you, they they grow sweet potato. They don't grow uh, the potatoes that we grow in in cooler climates. So uh, the north uh, that was staple food. Why is it does a boulevard taste so different here in France than it does anywhere else in the world? Well, certainly the bouillabaisse is a specialty of the Mediterranean. It was really a dish of a fisherman's dish. So the fishermen would catch uh, lots, lots of fish, lots of rockfish, and there was lots of them that was, uh, you know, good looking, you know, uh, good portion, you know, easy to sell at the market, and they always finished up with uh, two or three of these uh, not fish like that. Uh, Often very ugly fish, you know, like when I say ugly, a snapper is a pretty fish or, you know, a red snapper. It's a wonderful looking fish. A salmon is a good looking fish. But there's fishes that has all shapes and but they, they are delicious. They are very, very strong in flavor. So the fishermen would um, sell all the good looking fish and make a soup with that. And it was really a, a, a very quick soup, basically. Uh, some tomato, some oil. There's different, you know, uh, soup. Uh, a soup that is cooked very quickly, like, you know, on the boil, um, and, uh, you know, with four or five or six different fish. Sometimes there's shellfish. And, and those fish are extremely flavorsome in fish. Um, when you serve a bouillabaisse, you, you know, so there's those, some, a bit of vegetable, some uh, tomato, certainly. Uh, sometimes there's some anise flavor with fennel or other things. Uh, and then you put your fish, the fish traditionally put whole, they didn't cut it into small pieces, whole in it, and then the fish lifted out of that broth. Also in that broth there is some uh, um, uh, some of that beautiful yellow spice, what is it called? Uh, some uh, Saffron. Saffron, of course. Uh, that, that's really important. And then, um, so the, the broth is served... Uh, like that separately with some crouton with some uh, you know mayonnaise garlic mayonnaise and then the fish was filleted and then people add a little bit of fish that they put in that broth i have had uh, quite a number of bouillabaisse myself because i live we lived in provence for a year and a half with with our kids and uh, when it's well made it's a powerful flavor it's very powerful flavor it's very tasty there's lots of texture between the fish the broth um, it's a meal. It's a meal, and the crouton, of course, with the the rouille, you know. The so it is. It is one of the great. You know, to me, it's one of the ten great French classics. You know, what is it about French markets and the Poissonnet at a French market that you can have fish just out in the air in the middle of summer? Is it freshness? Is it well? You could say that it's not. It's not ideal. Ideal. Uh, but those people are professional, so they really get fresh fish. You know, like uh, you know, like in the restaurant I worked in, my apprenticeship, you gave a phone call at eleven o'clock at night to get some fresh fish from the sea the next morning, dropped uh, in front of you. So there is that idea of freshness that is very different, very different. Uh, and also, that ice is doing an important role, and that, so they they come. They, 
and they, they of course they put as much as possible on display. Um, in Australia, those markets would not operate. You know, there would be all kind of reasons why they would be closed. But in France, you can't do that. You know, those markets, like in Aix-en-Provence, the market that I was going was since uh, you know the revolution. Every day of the week, every day of the week. Um, so, so you know, there's traditions, but certainly that uh, they are trying to improve it. There's regulation and there's the norm now. There's the European norm that that's very difficult for some artisans. But nowadays, for example, uh, an example that is close, you know, the I think the, the they they have got to have refrigerator tracks. They probably keep uh, a lot of fish, and then they, during the day they put some more, some new one that that was kept in ice. Uh, the farmers nowadays, uh, years ago, you you went to buy your milk, you know, from you know they would measure it in front of you. Nowadays they come with a refrigerated um, little citern or, or you know barrel uh, where you can buy your raw milk that is kept at at three degrees or something like that, and and nobody touches it, you know, like. Uh, and, and when the milk, so so if you want, there's European norms, but for Australians uh, or Americans, it will it would look like if there's something wrong, but um, certainly when it's 40 degrees, it's not ideal. And those people in the market don't like it either. In the same way as they don't like it when it's minus 15, because in France, as you know, if it's minus 15, the market is still open and the people are outside and people go and do their markets. So it's not ideal for those days. They don't last forever. Uh, the mid-season in France are really wonderful. They are not too hot. They are not too cold. So uh, those places keep going. But it, there will be an evolution of hygiene and things like that with the time. You mentioned Paul Bocuse before. I've had the the pleasure of dining at many of his restaurants in Lyon, uh, in the city there, and then also the wonderful experience of actually dining at Bocuse in Lyon. And he wasn't there that day, but his this was before he passed passed on. But uh, his wife was there, yeah. and she came around. I think at the time she was in her late eighties. Uh, I'm not yes. sure. It might have been she might have been in her nineties actually. Uh, but she would come around to each table and introduce herself and say hello. It really was an amazing food experience and dish that I absolutely wanted to have. That was the sea brim. Oh. That had um, the, the pastry on top. Yes. Yeah. Have you had that dish yourself? Yes, yes. I've had it. Uh, I've taken groups. Um, one day I took about 30 people to Paul Bocus in Colonge-Jean-Mondor and they brought in the dining room four of those gigantic fish cooked in puff pastry. So basically, it is a it is a bar, a sea bass, that is um, a filleted. Uh, so you have got top fillets and bottom fillet. In between, they put uh, a mousse, a crayfish and fish mousse. And the whole thing is surrounded with path pastry made of the shape of the fish, complete with the scales and things like that. And it's cooked in, a, in an oven. Uh, and then they, they bring the, the whole fish to the table and they cut it into slices. And it is traditionally served with a sauce choron, which is a béarnaise with tomato in it. And uh, it is one of his great, great classic. It's uh, made, uh, he would have cooked uh, thousands and thousands of, um, of this fish. And my friend, 
Philippe Mouchel, a chef that is live, lives in Melbourne. That, uh, we love he has, Philippe. Yep. His yeah, food is amazing. With, uh, food is amazing. Worked with Paul Bocuse for many years. He, he told me that he's himself cooked thousands of them at the restaurant when he was working there. Gabrielle, I feel like I could just talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I look forward to the day that you can come to France again. How long has it been since you've been here? Almost, almost three years. Well, the next time you come over here, you'll have to pop into Montmorillon and have a visit. Maybe. We'll uh, we'll go explore and um, get some of the goat's cheese that this uh, region is well known for. And the trout as well, actually. There's a lot of wonderful trout around in yes. this region. What's next for Gabrielle Gatte? Because of COVID, I've been working on a, on a book of the different stages of my career and the recipes that that were important for me or in those stages. So the, the recipes of my youth at home, the recipes of my apprenticeship, the recipes of, you know, as a young chef, uh, my evolution as a chef, um, my, you know, my best family recipes, uh, my, my best recipes of the Tour de France, that kind of thing, and with a little bit of stories. So I'm, that's what I'm working at at the moment. And I'm always on the lookout for a, a job on television that would not be too, too demanding and that would take me to France. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would be the that idea. That would be the idea. Like, like I did. That would be the idea. Right. Well, you'll have to come and visit uh, a little old Aussie in Montmorillon when you come. Gabrielle Gatte, you have uh, given us such a wealth of knowledge and uh, and I'm so glad to have uh, talked with you and, and learned more about your career, especially your early career and uh, all about uh, French seafood. Thank you so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Gabrielle. Thank you, Andrew. How fabulous is Gabrielle Gatte? When I started Fabulously Delicious, I dreamed of the day that I'd be able to interview somebody like him, one of my food heroes, and look, here it is. And not only that, I got to interview him for a whole hour and a half, which made two episodes for you. It really showed what a generous and kind person he is to have taken the time to let me do that. And I hope you agree, it really was a fabulous podcast episode. What a wonderful wealth of knowledge he has about French food and seafood. And how lucky is Australia to have him living there, spreading the word of great food, seasonality and quality as well. Also, he's cooking up a storm with some delicious recipes from his cookbooks and on TV. So I can't wait to get my hands on that new cookbook. Remember, if you aren't already following me on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, then please do. Also, if you are on Apple, please leave me a review. Pretty please. A five-star one, maybe even. Hmm? Merci beaucoup. If you'd like to support Fabulously Delicious, you can do so by buying me a croissant via Buy Me A Coffee. Yes, I know that's a little bit confusing, but there will be a link in the show notes. Also via the Buy Me A Coffee, that is really hard to say, can I just say. Also via the Buy Me A Coffee link, you can book yourself in for a one-hour Zoom chat to discuss and let me plan your next trip to France or Paris. Well, help you plan it anyway. I can give you some great tips on where to stay, what to do, things to see and do there, as well as restaurants and places to go. So all you need to do is book yourself in for a Zoom chat and we'll have a one-hour conversation about all of the things that you need to do in France. Over the next few weeks, we have some more fabulous French foodies on the way. So please do keep listening. And remember, as I always say, whatever you do, do it fabulously. Abiento and bon app.
welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.